first day on the case. Jim heads back to his office, grabs his briefcase that contains all of his important documents, tips from previous cases, tricks and notes he's collected from the past, experiences and other such useful things. He looks through backdated search histories, for more research of course, pulls up old newspapers to look through missing persons and obituaries. Searching for more, Jim sees no other option but to reach out to an old colleague that he's worked with before on a number of odd cases. Hey, uh, Dave, it's, it's been some time. Hey, Jim, what's up? Uh, but, uh... Do what? Oh, nothing, never mind. I was, uh, calling you today to try to get to, um, you know, my usual access to the missing persons database. I got a, uh, got another case I'm working on. Think you could help me out? Okay, uh, what do you need? Oh, you know, just, just access to the database, as usual. Um... Yeah, just uh, just for a week. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a bit of a weird case. Yeah, I mean, uh, what are you getting yourself into, though? Are you sure about this? Oh, well, I'm not getting a weird hinky feeling, you know, like like I've gotten before. But um, no, it doesn't seem like it's any trouble. It's just the missing persons. Oh, I already know where the back door is. I just need the password to get through. You know, because, uh, you'll change it every week. Yeah, I'll send it to you in Telegram. Oh, no. No need to write it down. Just go ahead and, uh, just go ahead and send it to me. Um, and I'll tell you what. Uh, just send it to me in a secure email. I appreciate it, Dave. Cool, cool. So, uh, hey man, what are you, uh, what are you getting up to these days? Ah, uh, not much. You still take the boat out on, uh, Saturdays and Sundays? Go out fishing on the, on the lake out there? Yeah, been doing that and getting started, uh, in a little smoking. Like smoking meats, you know? Yeah, it's kind of cool. You can get, uh, get into it with all kinds of wood, all kinds of different processes, different rubs, all that kind of stuff. Oh, oh, it sounds like a, uh... Yeah, you should come by and check it out sometime. When you're gonna be over this way. Yeah, you know, I might be over in your area in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll be over that area. Yeah, come, uh, come check it out. Oh, well, hit me up when you're in the area. Yeah, we'll hang out. Uh, try to smoke some meats. Well, yeah, I'd definitely be down to hang out and learn a thing or two about that. And pretty sure it'll help me in the long run. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll come around and, uh, and hang out with you. Cool. Alright. Uh, I guess I'll let you go. Alright. Well, much appreciated, Dave. So I'll, uh, I'll let you know when I'm in the area, when, uh, when I'm headed your way. Alright, you have a good one, man. You too. After receiving what he required from Dave, 
Jim accesses the database and consigns himself to research for the remainder of the evening. Second day on the case. Jim goes through town asking folks questions about the missing sister, but turns up with nothing and no leads. Sir, sir! Excuse me, sir, do you mind if I ask you a few questions concerning a missing person's fruit? What? Shh! Oh, what missing person? What? what? Uh, are you some kind of investigator? Did my wife hire you? A wife? What? Well, I don't know anything about that. Don't lie to me, son! I know Maggie's put in your pocket bag, uh, book, uh, money, clip, uh, uh, whatever the hell you kids use these days. Sir, look, I don't even know who that is. I just need to ask if you've seen this woman around. Woman? Uh, uh, I ain't seen no woman since Maggie. Uh, don't you go tell her that uh, she thinks I'm dead. <laughs> she wasn't even my pilot a beneficiary. <laughs> Facility. I'm sorry, sir. Is he bothering your uh, personage? Oh, no, no, not at all. Do we be having a lovely conversation? Huh? Oh, not really, no. I was, I was going to ask him about a missing person, but he thought I was working for his wife, Maggie. Maggie? Uh, that old story again. His wife, Helena, has been dead for 11 years. They made this bit up about Maggie, or whoever this woman is, to make him seem like he's hiding out. Guess he wants to seem exotic or something. Come on, Mr. Childs. Let me get you back to your room. Dad, Nick and Knight's about to hold a marathon. Oh, yes, yes, thank you, Bertrand. Nick and Knight. Stranger, uh, good luck with your uh, investigation, not concerning my wife. Uh, goodbye. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, naked night, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, uh, Dick Van Dyke, yes, he's a funny one, uh, clever fellow. <laughs> Ooh, Legends of the Hidden Temple, <laughs> uh, quite exciting, yes. Now, what in the blazing hells was that all about? Hey, sir. Sir, excuse me, sir. Uh, do you mind if I uh, ask you a few questions concerning uh, a missing persons? Um, uh, working on a particular case and, uh... What? Oh, hey, bro. What's up, man? What? Yeah, cool, bro. Well, I won't take too much of your time. It's all right. I see you're a pretty busy guy. It's just... I have a couple of questions concerning what? if you've seen so questions about a missing lady. Oh, I don't know, bro. See, I got all these dogs I'm walking, man. See, I'm a dog walker. It's what I do, man. You know, you gotta pay the bills somehow, you know. So I'm walking dogs. Catch my drift, bro. 
Some chick. I, uh, I think I can help you out. Uh, yeah, but it isn't just some chick, you see. The lady's name is... Oh, I ain't interested in names. But I know a few girls, and for the right price, you could know them too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Wait, what? No, no, I'm not looking for a hooker. I'm on a missing persons case, man. What the hell is wrong with people today? Shh, don't be so loud, man. Oh, don't be so loud, man, calling stuff like that, shh. Oh, Weird-ass people asking me if I want to look for some kind of... Uh, <laughs> stupid... Um, downfall society, man. I can't believe it's so... Uh, complete digression of decency. It's like nobody has any decency. Weird crap's going on today. Uh, well, a simple no would have been fine. Uh, uh, go and find me when you get lonely! Weirdo. As Jim makes his way back inside his apartment building, he reassures himself that it's just the second day on the case. He won't be solving this one as quickly as the others, as there are many unknown factors at play. He gets inside his apartment, locks the door, and sets himself to more computer research. He doesn't search for very long before coming across a strange website that's very plain in its creation. It contains a solid background color, two lines of text that read, Where is Susan Fontenot? and a blown-up photograph that seems very much like the picture that Sam gave him. Jim studies the website for a few minutes, noting that it was created just two days after Susan's supposed date of disappearance. It might be something, he thought, so he writes down their address on a notepad beside his keyboard and saves a screenshot of it to his desktop, and then subsequently moves it to a folder. He snubs out the cigarette that was beginning to burn too close to bare skin, and ends his search for the evening. Fixing himself the usual dinner for one, he settles in for the remainder of the night to get a better start in the morning. He makes a mental note to give Sam a call to give him a progress update, seeing as how he doesn't want to give the impression that he's taking the money and not putting forth the effort. The third day, Jim wakes and goes through the usual routine of getting himself ready for a productive day. He collects his phone from the bedside table, pulls up Sam's number from his notes and proceeds to call. As Jim waits for Sam to answer, he pulls up the photo given to him of Susan and turns it over to look at the address. He studies it for a few minutes, wondering if he knows exactly where the address is without having to 
refer to a GPS system. Jim then realizes that he's been waiting for Sam to answer for a good couple of minutes and deduces that he may not have a voicemail service. Jim hangs up and decides to make the trip to the sister's house. He may find something that the others may have not immediately noticed. He pockets his phone, grabs his jacket, his notepad, a pen, and a flashlight, which he checks to make sure is bright and works properly. He won't get caught in the dark in a strange house again. Unable to deduce Susan's address from memory, Jim gets into his car, plugs her address into a map service on his phone, and heads out. A little over half an hour later, he pulls into an empty cul-de-sac with just one house occupying the lot. It was a one-story house that's been boarded up and looked as though it had been abandoned longer than Susan had been missing. The front porch was in serious disrepair and partly collapsed, so Jim made his way around back. He finds a loose board covering the back door, so he invites himself in like a vampire in search for the pulse of information. Creeping through the house, Jim feels his skin prickle a bit. It sets him on edge. The house felt odd, suffocating, as though it were filled with aging and rotting clothing, but lacking the smell of such. Going through the individual rooms, he finds no trace of anything to use as a lead but moth-chewed clothing and two-year-old newspapers. Nothing of importance and nothing to use. Jim heads out through the back door and replaces the loose board. As he is leaving out of the cul-de-sac, he notices an older man donning a tugboat captain's outfit, staring at him. He turns the engine off and decides to ask him about the house. Jim also regards the sheepdog sitting next to the skipper and figures they may be roughly the same age. Good day, son. The old man pipes up before Jim can even get a word out. Uh, good day, sir. You mind if I ask what business you got with the old vendor C's house? And don't think a lie to me, son. I got no ear for it. Well, honestly, that's my business. But since I was going to ask you about it anyway, I'm a private investigator looking for a missing person. Have you heard about a missing woman by the name of Susan Fontenot? That used to live at that house there? Susan Fontenot? I never heard of her. And I've lived in this neighborhood for 30 years. The last folks I've seen living out of that house there were the Vanderseys. And they haven't been around these parts for a good seven years. Says nothing for squatters these days. Ain't that right, boy? The old captain finishes as he pats the dog's head. <laughs> the dog replies. Seven years? Uh, that doesn't make very much sense. Jim says, looking down at his notes. Susan's brother's been looking for her for two and see if this was the last known address. Uh, what can you tell me about the vendor's, uh... The hell, where did he go? Jim asked, looking up. 
but the old man wasn't there. The dog that was still sitting there coughs and walks off in the direction of a house a few addresses down. Still puzzled about where the old man went, Jim gets in his car and heads home. The sheepdog walks up to the porch of a house whose front door is slightly ajar, as an old captain's face, just behind the door, watches Jim's car pull out of sight. Returning home with more questions than answers, Jim fixes himself a simple dinner, pondering the events of the day over a cigarette. He decides to try looking over the strange website again. Remembering he wrote the web address down on a notepad, he goes to his computer, but the notepad is not his desk. He looks over the entire surface and looks through the drawers. Knowing he didn't take the notepad with him, he checks the history on the cameras in his apartment to see if an unwanted guest had paid a visit. Seeing no sign of foul play, Jim then remembers he took a screenshot of the web address and saved it to his folder of oddities. He finds the folder, opens the picture file, and begins typing the web address into his browser. As he presses enter, the power to his apartment suddenly goes out, giving Jim a bit of a start. Unloading a small string of curses and frustrations, Jim grabs his phone, along with a flashlight and heads downstairs, and outside to see what new problem has arisen from the depths of ridiculousness. Arriving outside, he quickly notices the power in his immediate area is completely out. Asking someone nearby about the situation, he manages to glean that some distracted driver must have parked their vehicle into a power pole. Halting his progress for the immediate future, he decides it would be for the best to call it a night and start fresh tomorrow. He wakes the next morning, goes to make his coffee, remembers the power is still out, and decides to just pick up something on his way out. He goes to visit a fellow colleague, who also happens to be a retired investigator, to ask him for some tips and ideas to help him on his case. He purposefully leaves out identifying information as to not get his friend involved in any trouble that might come from this investigation. After a few hours of conversation, and not really much gained in the way of additional knowledge of how to move forward, Jim bids his colleague good day and heads home. He had spent more time at Pierce's than he had anticipated. Pulling onto a street near his apartment building, Jim breathes a sigh of relief as he sees street lights lit and building signs illuminated, signifying the power had been restored. Jim makes his way up to his apartment, locking the door as he gets inside. He heads straight for his computer, boots it up, and goes to pull up the screenshot with the web address for a second try. Much to his dismay, he discovers that the power outage has somehow corrupted the picture file, and it is no longer accessible. With a frustrated sigh, 
and another long string of curses and frustrations. Knowing the possibility of finding the site again will be nigh impossible. He resigns himself to dinner, a rerun of a previously watched show, and a cigarette or two to end a most unproductive day. Settling in bed, the thought of his somehow misplaced notepad comes back to mind, and Jim mulls over the thought until the embrace of darkness takes him. Jim's eyes shoot open at the sound of rushing water as he finds himself half standing, half floating on a grassy plain facing the last known address of Susan Fontenot. Her house stood upon a large grass-covered hill, but everything was submerged underwater and surrounded by a darkness so thick it was unpierceable. He goes to move his body, only to notice that his view is not in first person. As he trains his sight down and gazes upon himself very much in third person. His body begins to move forward, but not by his own will, and his sight moves forward and down to meet his body. As his vision resettles into his own eyes, he is very aware that he is moving against his own will, as well as somehow breathing underwater as naturally as he would above it. He floats closer to the house, and the door opens, allowing him to float freely into the house, then closes promptly behind him. Almost as suddenly as he had stopped inside the house, his body begins moving room to room autonomously, aimlessly, and Jim must fight with his every capacity to regain control of himself, very much alike a lucid dreamer taking control of their dream. As he regains positive control, his attention is pulled to the guest room of the house, where he sees in a corner near the closet a couple of floorboards free of their settling, with scraps of paper amongst them. Jim squints his eyes and moves a bit closer to see the scraps of paper appear to be a torn-up letter, and he moves to collect them. He suddenly feels an icy cold current, as strong as a wave wash over him, and begin pulling him out of the house. Jim is thrust out of the house, breaking the door off its hinges, and as he is pushed further away from the house, his eyes gaze upwards, and what he sees sends chills throughout his entire body. Two enormous glowing yellow eyes regarded him much like Jim would regard an ant crawling across his countertop. They loomed over the house, almost like a giant standing guard. Jim's mind reeled and his stomach ached as it felt like the eyes were burning into him, weighing him, measuring him. Just as it felt as if Jim's head would crack open, spilling all his thoughts and memories out into this expanse for this massive creature to scrutinize over, Jim let out an agonizing cry and everything goes dark. Jim bolts upright in his bed, covered in a cold sweat, gulping for air as though he had been holding his breath for minutes without end. His pillowcase and sheets drenched with perspiration. He immediately reaches into a drawer in his bedside table for a notepad and a pen, and begins writing everything down about the dream that he can remember, which to his surprise is everything in eerie detail. 
Jim leans back against the wall of his bedroom, lighting a cigarette, and runs through the dream again in his mind. He snuffs it out, climbs out of bed, and begins ready himself for the drive back to Susan's abandoned house. He brings his flashlight and a claw hammer for the floorboards he saw floating in the dream, and makes it to the house with no issue. He makes his way around back to where he had previously entered, and as he enters the house, he can sense something is different this time. There was a definite feeling of foreboding now that he did not sense on the last visit. For the first time in a long time, he closes his eyes, inhales and exhales deeply, then switches on his extrasensory vision. A slight feeling of nostalgia washes over him as it settles in, but quickly dissipates when he opens his eyes. The once bare walls of Susan's old home were now covered in a writing or language he couldn't discern. It was foreign and alien to him, almost as if straight out of a sci-fi movie. There were squiggles and scrawls, swirls and jagged lines all throughout it, seeming as though it were written by a hand plagued with a madness Jim had never seen. There was also a light permeating fog that seemed to fill the house, and felt as though it were attempting to muddy and cloud Jim's thoughts, almost dissuading him from being there. Jim fought it down and forced himself to clear his mind. Now was not the time to choose flight over fight, and he would see it through. He makes his way to the guest room, using the claw hammer to pry up the boards he saw floating in his dream. Jim reaches his hand down into the space under the floor, and his hand touches something. He grins and pulls out a few scraps of paper. Feeling a sense of victory, he uses his flashlight to collect the remaining scraps and stuffs them into his jacket pocket. He replaces the floorboards and heads back to his car, making sure to cover his trail and remain unnoticed. Back at his apartment, Jim does his best to rearrange the scraps in order to discern their contents. It takes a few minutes of translating as condensation had taken a bit of a toll on the parts of the litter, but he manages to piece the message together. Susan, I don't have anyone else I can turn to. I think I'm being watched and followed by someone. I don't know why they're doing it. Please, you have to help me. I'm scared and I don't know what else I can do. We've been friends for a long time and I've never asked you for much. Please come to Aberdeen in Washington, Susan. You're all I've got. Call me as soon as you get this. Huh. Will you look at that? Guess I'm taking a flight. Thank you for tuning in for the second episode of Whispers in the Wash. It seems Jim found a lead after all. What could have been the significance of the website that he found, and the enormous looming figure in the dream? Stay tuned and find out in the next installment of Whispers in the Wash.